In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mongoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor, normally in Dublin, but at home on leave in Kildare this week. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin. This week, the trade negotiations have limped into the end game, although there is no end in sight yet. But they've been eclipsed by some big events elsewhere. Those events could have a strong bearing on both Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol. Joe Biden is in and Dominic Cummings is out. We'll assess the office politics in Downing Street, what difference, if any, Joe Biden might make. And we look at those two phone calls he had with Boris Johnson and Micheál Martin. And with less than 50 days to go to the 1st of January, we'll uncover the gruelling efforts to make the Northern Ireland Protocol oven ready and to make it as palatable as possible. And talking of oven ready, we'll look at a possible grace period for northern supermarkets and how they'll get around the costs and complexities of shipping in ready-made lasagnas and other foodstuffs from GB. Okay, but first, let's have a look at developments in the United States because it was a pretty hectic couple of weeks there around the election. And Joe Biden, at least amongst international leaders and the Democratic Party at the very least, is deemed president-elect of the United States Uh, To you first, Sean, in terms of the special relationship between the UK and the US, what difference does this make? Is it an uncomfortable situation for Boris Johnson or is there secretly relief that they can get on with politics as normal in a multilateral system? There's certainly relief amongst the uh, Whitehall professionals because uh, a Biden regime is a return to the kind of normality that they've been used to. And also the uh, Biden agenda does have a lot of crossover points. Some of the big agenda items that the British uh, have on the plate uh, for the year ahead, most notably the COP26, the climate change uh, agreement uh, conference that's being held at the end of next year. Uh, It's been deferred because of COVID. Obviously, uh, the US pulled out of that under Donald Trump. Biden has said he wants to go back into it. A, a great opportunity for the British and the new Biden administration to cooperate on a really big, really important uh, issue there. Also, in terms of security, Biden is a died in the wool Atlanticist, regular attender at the Munich Security Conference, knows the foreign policy establishment in Europe, uh, is very pro NATO, uh, isn't going to kick up about it. I'm sure he'd like countries to contribute their 2% of GDP in defence spending, uh, but he won't approach it in the same way that Donald Trump does. And also in terms of uh, international interventions, the British are going to be in the chair of the UN Security Council come February, which will be the first full month of a Biden administration. So there'll be lots of opportunities for British diplomats in particular to get in front of the new president and his team. So they see a lot of common ground there to try and build upon and try and uh, reshape that relationship 
put it back in a more normal footing, uh, in a, a more normal atmosphere, as they would see it. Right. The one fly in the ointment is, of course, uh, Brexit and the internal markets bill, um, which Mr. Biden has reminded Boris Johnson about uh, and his dislike of that bill and the problems that it could cause for the uh, Good Friday Agreement and his insistence that he's not going to have anything uh, on the, um, the in terms of a, a trade agreement with Britain if it does interfere with the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, that was mentioned in the phone call. And of course, Joe Biden, uh, his first phone call to a European leader was to Boris Johnson. And that took some people by surprise because they had been focusing a lot on this uh, issue of the Good Friday Agreement and the Internal Markets Bill in the British media. Suddenly, uh, it has become much more serious an issue. It's one thing for the Irish government to be complaining about it. They can be ignored. It's one thing for the European Commission to be complaining about it. Yeah, yeah, what do you expect from Brussels? But if the guy who's just won the uh, United States uh, presidential election is complaining about it, well, then they have to pay attention to it. And that, combined with a, an enormous defeat for the government in the House of Lords on Monday night when they were debating these controversial lawbreaker clauses of the Internal Markets Bill, uh, really uh, is starting to put uh, Boris Johnson under a lot more pressure on this Internal Markets Bill. It's pretty clear in the politics here now that there is no playing off the United States uh, and the European Union, and they don't have somebody like Trump uh, in the White House, or at least won't have in the new year, who would be pulling for a trade deal. And also the Trump right. administration but by pressure. made it pretty clear that they won't be doing a trade deal until uh, there's an outcome on the EU uh, trade talks uh, between Britain and the EU. So for all those reasons, I think there will probably be a fairly normal relationship with Joe Biden, assuming nothing goes uh, awry in terms of the internal market bill and the Good Friday Agreement and the withdrawal agreement. Right. And just before we leave that, Sean, by pressure, you mean if Boris Johnson decides to double down and insist on all of those parts of the internal markets bill that the House of Lords wants removed, if he insists on putting those in with all of the objections that the European Union and the Irish government have put through the prism of the Good Friday Agreement, this puts him in an awkward position vis-a-vis -vis his relations with the US. Correct. Okay. Tony, over to you then. But Joe Biden in the White House, how has Europe greeted it from the point of view of multilateral institutions and particularly Brexit? Is this leverage or is this I suppose an opportunity to cooperate on a trilateral basis with the UK how is it seen well there was obvious delight in Europe that Joe Biden won uh, but tempered by a realization that his first priority is going to be domestic I mean he's got to bring the this United States of Europe of, of America back together uh, he's got a huge pandemic problem on his hands he's got uh, massive economic problems. So his first priorities will be there. And in any event, under his Democratic Party predecessor, Barack Obama, America had been drifting away a little bit from Europe anyway. It, it, there was the pivot to Asia uh, and, you know, a certain impatience at how difficult it is to get Europe to speak with one voice and so on. And, uh, uh, and I think, you know, that's recalibration of the relationship uh, will, will be ongoing. But clearly, as, as Sean has outlined, for all those reasons of Biden's multilateral instincts, uh, Europe is is much more, is, is hugely relieved. But I think there is a, a quiet debate going on in Europe about Europe having to think for itself and act for itself a lot more often, you know, as the century uh, continues. Uh, you know, we've had 
big problems in Europe's neighbourhood. We've had the, the demonstrations and the repression in Belarus. And again, Europe has been pretty helpless there. We've had the ongoing conflict in Libya. The migration problem is still a, a real running sore. Um, and then, you know, the pandemic exposed real gaps in Europe's response to a big global issue like uh, coronavirus. And there's talk of things like uh, the concept of open strategic autonomy, which is code for, you know, perhaps some more protectionist instincts taking over in Europe, uh, Europe having to do things its own way, not relying on, on the United States. Uh, and of course, Europe is also having to figure out what to do with China uh, on, on many fronts. So yes, relief, but tempered with knowing that things won't simply revert to the way things were under Obama. What position is Ireland? And Joe Biden has, you know, a professed affinity for Ireland and the overtures, obviously, to Ireland as a member of the European Union and the Anglo- an Anglophone member of the European Union. What position does that put Ireland in with respect to its relations with the United States? Does it strengthen Ireland's position in Europe for it to be seen as a partner of the United States with Joe Biden in the White House? Well, interestingly enough, some people have speculated that with Britain out of the European Union, it's less useful to the United States. Washington would always go to London to get a sense of what's happening in Europe. It would leverage its interests in Europe through the British government. But with that option now closed, uh, there's been some speculation that Ireland will be a, a natural interlocutor for the Europe, for the Americans, especially with this very strong emotional bind between Joe Biden and Ireland uh, and, of course, the, the, the language connection and the historic connection as well. So it doesn't do Ireland any harm. Um, but then again, Ireland is under the spotlight on taxation, on corporate tax, on uh, a digital tax. It doesn't want to be seen to be too close to the Americans either on those issues. So, uh, But I think overall, this is a good result for Ireland in Europe uh, and a good result for Europe. All right. Well, let's pull it back to Brexit then. What does Joe Biden mean from a European perspective, from from Brussels, Tony? Is Joe Biden seen as somebody who can exercise the right kind of leverage on Boris Johnson rather than being an enabler of the Brexit project like Donald Trump? Well, there was some speculation here, Colm, that the trade negotiations had really slowed down in the past week. There was there was an awful lot of gloomy soundings coming out of those talks in, in London and then Brussels and then back to London. Uh, and the U- UK had seemed to have really stalled or gone back on commitments they'd made in the negotiations. This is certainly the, the EU's viewpoint. And there was some speculation that Boris Johnson was waiting to see the outcome of the uh, US presidential election before nailing his colours to the mast. And of course, you know, Trump has been associated with Brexit. That whole populist surge of 2016 was very much uh, bound up with the, the, the Brexit spirit. And we've we've had the the elevation of people like Nigel Farage in, in Donald Trump's firmament. Uh, and, and that is all going to change, of course. But I think in general, the fact, as Sean has said, the fact that Joe Biden publicly publicly came out against the Internal Market Bill, uh, or at least he talked about the Good Friday Agreement in euphemistic terms when everybody knew he was referring to the Internal Market Bill. Um, that is going to make it harder for the UK to try and cling to that. Uh, and again, if there was going to be no deal, 
in the trade negotiations, then it would be more likely that the internal market bill would come into play. The UK would probably try and try to insist on it. Um, the fact that that is going to go down very badly in Washington, again, you could say that that might contribute to a, a greater willingness by Boris Johnson to go for a right. deal. But overall, what you keep hearing is people saying, look, there's a deal right in front of him if he wants it. Uh, he just doesn't know if he wants it or not. He doesn't right. know if he wants to prepare, if he's prepared to pay the political price uh, in the short term. But the Good Friday Agreement flank, if it can be called that, is something that Boris Johnson, it's a playing field he now has to play on because he's trying to argue for the merits of the internal markets bill through the prism of protecting the Good Friday Agreement. And the fact that he articulated that to the White House would mean that this is a very serious concern. It's not just something that's regarded as something the Irish government or the internal politics of Northern Ireland is concerned with. Well, the thing is, nobody really believes that the internal market bill is there to protect the Good Friday Agreement, uh, certainly in Brussels and Dublin and, and Washington. Uh, and, you know, the, that argument is really treated with scorn. The, pr- the protocol in Northern Ireland was agreed step by step, word by word, for nearly four years of talks and negotiations. And it was seen as the best balance to protect the Good Friday Agreement, pr- make sure there's no hard border, and deal with the complexities of the UK being out of the customs union and single market uh, in a way which minimises the pain as far as possible. Now, of course, the pain isn't minimised completely, but for the British government to come along and say, we're going to unilaterally interpret what the protocol means and we will disapply elements of it in UK law because we don't like those elements. I mean, that's really what this comes down to. And it's more of an issue of trust for the Europeans uh, and that is echoed in Washington uh, than anything else. Sean, you haven't been with us for a few weeks, but it's a good week to be back because with Joe Biden's arrival, I suppose it's apt to turn to Dominic Cummings' departure, confirming today, although he said he was always going to go, he said he'd be gone by Christmas. He referred people back to his blog, and presumably this is one he actually did write in January when this is recorded on the blog as opposed to a revision of the blog, which has happened before. He's going. Is he going because he wants to go, because he believes himself to be redundant? Or has he come up against the buffers yet again and become disgusted with the handbrakes being put on his ambitious projects by British officialdom? I don't think British officialdom is necessarily the problem, although they don't like him, uh, obviously, because he does shake things up. That's not necessarily a bad thing if you succeed. Uh, But look at the track record of the government uh, since it came to power. Uh, In particular, you've got um, the uh, handling or mishandling of the COVID pandemic. In this week, let us not forget, the death toll here in the UK has passed the 50,000 mark. That is an enormous number of people who have died from COVID-19. And the testing and tracing regime here in the UK has been chaotic. Um, I've personal experience of it. It's uh, It ain't working, folks. It's just not working well. And there are enormous amounts of money being lobbed into that system. There's serious questions being asked about the way uh, that uh, private companies have been given contracts without tenders uh, to perform a whole lot of tasks that nobody seems to be uh, able to control. So and a lot of that kind of approach has been fairly ideologically driven that the uh, entire system will be farmed out to the private sector instead of being given to the an augmented public health uh, sector. Uh, and a lot of that is being traced to the door of Dominic Cummings. 
who was very involved in the government's response to COVID-19, even though, of course, he uh, notoriously broke the rules and regulations in his long drive to the north of England when he and his wife uh, both had the disease in the early part uh, of this uh, And then the short uh, drive to test his eyesight, which... A short drive to test his eyesight. And that whole farrago that ensued from that, uh, there was academic research published in August that claimed that that had undermined the um, faith in the system of uh, a large number of British people who are not willing to uh, accept uh, the uh, strictures and regulations that were being imposed on them by the government. So there seems to have been a very real consequence. So so COVID was the... And the fact that Boris Johnson held on to him. But uh, also you've got the economic consequences of that. Uh, There is a a growing uh, tide uh, of the knives starting to be if not taken out, then at least certainly being rattled in the the scabbards uh, against Boris Johnson himself. And uh, before you get to Boris Johnson, you have uh, his chief advisor in the firing line. And it it seems to me that it's a bit more than office politics, uh, a bit more than disagreements over who gets to be the public face of Downing Street in terms of uh, communicating the message. It seems to me now about pivoting away from the conflict-based politics that have been associated with Dominic Cummings and trying to find a new, calmer, more professional type of politics uh, that uh, is in many ways a return to normal. And here we we can tie it in with the Biden uh, victory in the United States, that if the United States is moving away from the Trumpian style uh, of confrontational politics, then perhaps Britain is moving away from the Cummings style of confrontational politics. And that's... Is, is there a Brexit angle to, to that? We did hear, and it, this has been said not to be true by Dominic Cummings himself, that it was nonsense. Anyone who knows what's going on inside Number 10 Downing Street knows there's no Brexit angle to this, he says. But it was also, there was also reports that David Frost considered his position, the UK's Brexit negotiator considered his position, and obviously Lee Kane, the communications uh, the chief of communications in Downing Street who departed before Dominic Cummings announced his departure, He's also of the vote leave stripe. So is any of this portentous of a Brexit compromise or is that just coincidence? Well, if if the the pro-leave people who are now crestfallen are saying it's nothing to do with Brexit, well, you kind of would expect them to say that, wouldn't you? Uh, Brexit is their big project that they are on the verge of delivering. Now, whether it's quite the project they wanted, uh, probably not. There will have to be compromises on both sides to get this deal across the line. I mean, this is the nature of getting deals across the line. Perhaps they don't like it. But the notion that uh, the chief negotiator at the UK, just apparently days away from uh, a crunch deadline on this whole Brexit process, would be prepared to walk because his mate Lee Kane got the heave-ho from Boris Johnson, I find to be stretching things a bit too far, unless the power struggle is is so immense and utterly concentrated on Brexit. But I don't think it is concentrated on Brexit. I think it is a wider issue. Brexit is certainly part of the problem. Uh, and the uh, the lack of preparation uh, or the, the fact they're so far behind on preparation here is going to blow back on the government. There's rising fears about supply chains, and we'll talk about that in a little while. Uh, coming in the new year, you've got the COVID crisis ongoing. You've got the economic crisis getting worse. Uh, You've got the prospect of Christmas being destroyed. So a lot of very depressed people in the country and public opinion does count here. And the the sense amongst the Conservative Party, the backbenchers, 
and the ministers who don't like the Dominic Cummings approach has been, look, we've got to change something. We've got to have a, a radical change of direction. We need to communicate our policy better with the people and we need a new type of policy and a new type of politics and try and concentrate on the more positive things such as climate change. And this is why they're fastening onto the Biden presidency now as saying this is part of our route out uh, a new direction away from all the horrible conflict right. uh, that has been racking US, UK politics uh, for the past four years and indeed US politics as well. And that, I, I suspect, think- is probably a lot more to uh, this row. And also the fact that you've got communications, people like Carrie Simons, Boris's uh, fiance, uh, and Allegra Stratton, the new face of uh, British government communications is due to start in uh, January. They've been uh, involved in this battle of the advisors, and they seem to be the ones who, who are coming out on top. And they also seem to be the ones promoting this less conflictual uh, line of policy and its communication. Yeah, I mean, just just a quick observation there, Sean. Uh, I don't know what you think about this. Uh, you know, with Cummings and his cohort on the way out, uh, there is the risk, according to some people within the Tory party, that it, it just goes back to being a boring South of England party. And, you know, he was obviously instrumental in associating the Conservatives and associating Boris Johnson with Brexit and with the the, the red wall seats in the north of England and, and the Midlands. And, you know, if he is gone and that direction is changed, then it does leave the risk for the Conservatives that they do go back to this David Cameron uh, safe, boring South of England uh, party. There's some risk there, of course, but don't forget the key to that something uh, 80 seat majority are the so-called red wall seats in the north of England, the seats that flipped from Labour to the Conservative Party. And that caucus group of uh, new Conservative MPs in those seats are not at all shy about letting rip and shouting and hollering and looking for support and looking for help. And they're particularly under the cosh at the moment because of the COVID pandemic and because of the failures in the system uh, to uh, help people in those areas. Uh, They have been most vocal. So the idea, if the Conservatives were to drift back Uh, to being a boring South of England party, they would certainly lose those seats and would become a minority party, wouldn't be able to command uh, a majority at future elections. And the threat of losing seats is the one thing that motivates every MP in that House of Parliament. So uh, no, I don't think the North is going to be uh, forgotten just because Donald Cummings is gone. Uh, I think some real Northerners, if you like, are going to be much more uh, vocal and active in the politics of the Conservative Party, as indeed they are now. Uh, and they just won't allow uh, the North to be neglected uh, in the way uh, it has been, mostly through mismanagement, it has to be said, more so than uh, a lack of policy. Insofar as this is important in the bigger picture, outside of the UK, Tony, is Dominic Cummings' departure and the departure of Lee Kane greeted at all with amusement? Uh, is it welcomed, relief perhaps uh, in Brussels, or do they care at this stage? Well, I don't think they're expecting any handbrake turn from Boris Johnson now that Boris, that Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane have, have gone or announced their departure. And if you think about it, you know, the, the kind of Brexit that we are looking at in the next days is a very, very hard Brexit. It's nothing like the Brexit that Theresa May was trying to midwife through her tortured uh, tenure. Uh, And it's nothing like the 
kind of Brexit that most opinion polls showed in the aftermath of the referendum that British voters wanted. You know, they wanted to have a close relationship with Europe. They wanted to be able to access the single market, the customs union. They wanted supply chains to be maintained. What we have on the table now is is a really hard Brexit, and it's kind of it's been getting harder by the day. So you could say that. Um, you know, uh, Dominic Cummings achieved his ambition, um, but in the end, you're you're looking at the harder edge of a hard Brexit, and you know th- that's why this has become so difficult uh, because Boris Johnson is still saying the U- EU is trying to encroach on Britain's sovereignty. It's not really accepting Britain as an independent country, but even for the basic relationship in a free trade sense, you know there is got to be some dispensation of sovereignty uh, by both sides, uh, and this is the kind of fundamental philosophical debate that's really still dragging this process down. And, and, and you know, we're still, according to anybody I've spoken to, they're still really far apart on fisheries, on the level playing field, on state aid. And there are, there are only days left before somebody is going to have to say that there's got to be a cutoff here because otherwise the European Parliament won't have the time to process this treaty and then ratify it in the middle of December. Right. Well, that's the readiness from the European legal scrubbing and ratification and all that side of things. Sean, I think I heard the sound of highlighter pens on paper and pages being turned on your end. How ready is the UK for Brexit? Not ready enough. And you're right. I've been highlighting bits and pieces from a report that came out this week from the National Audit Office. They've been doing periodic reviews of the uh, preparedness of the British system for Brexit. They've been looking at things like the customs service uh, and like the border delivery groups uh, and their activities. Uh, The report this week, uh, and we are, what, 49 days today from uh, the uh, end of Britain's membership of the customs union uh, and that hard customs curtain dropping down. And as Tony was saying, the harder end of the hard Brexit uh, scenarios coming through, uh, they're saying basically it's not ready. It's not ready for stuff. The, the, the general comment from uh, the departments was they have a reasonable degree of confidence in being able to deliver a minimum operating capability by the 1st of January, although timetables are tight uh, and that covers a multitude uh, of sins. Uh, but essentially, uh, the computer systems, uh, most of them uh, are not tested. And it's a particular problem for the Northern Ireland uh, arrangements, and I think we'll talk about that in a few minutes as well. But uh, there, the systems will not be ready for at least a year, uh, and also there's uh, confusion amongst the traders there. Even though they've agreed to set up this uh, trader uh, support scheme, uh, where basically the government will pay uh, a shed load of people to do all the paperwork for uh, traders in Northern Ireland, that in itself. Uh, is behind times as well. Uh, One of the interesting little nuggets from this um, audit uh, office report was the impact of COVID on the preparations. Uh, And it's telling us that the uh, ministerial decision-making, the XO committee that was dealing with all these Brexit issues that had to make decisions on a week-by-week basis. The COVID ate their homework, did it? They they, they had no meetings for three months. So there was three months of decision-making gone by simply because uh, of the uh, COVID situation and trying to catch up with that is extremely difficult. And we've got a hard deadline of the 1st of January on one end of it. 
uh, it becomes almost impossible. So that's why they're highlighting the fact that the uh, risk of fraud has now increased, even though the British government, as we've talked of before, announced this pragmatic extension period where they basically said we're not going to check stuff for six months uh, in effect. The NAO are saying here, look, uh, this increases fiscal risk in a six-month period when controls will not be in place. So uh, that's a big, wide, open goal for every VAT fraudster and customs and excise dodger out there. I'm sure people have been planning uh, their retirement uh, scheme funds uh, on the basis that there'd be some kind of a gap in the regulations around the Brexit switch, but they got a six-month wide goal now. So they, they're better forward planning maybe amongst the black market than there is uh, amongst uh, the UK government in that case, is it? Forward? Usually is uh, the case, but um, somebody will no doubt want to do for customs and excise what Ronnie Biggs did for rail transport. And uh, the time is, is uh, fast closing in uh, for when that is going to be. There's also been some developments in, in some of the committees as well. We heard from uh, a couple of groups involved in logistics and also software for the logistics industry and councillors involved in the forward planning. And we were down to the level of granularity now where they're expecting the queues, as we know, uh, down in Kent and the uh, this special computer system they've had to set up for truck drivers to see can they actually enter Kent, the Kent access permit. Uh, that, they think, works and uh, is, is very simple for truck drivers to operate. But there is no general customs manual, uh, which uh, they're promising sometime next week to have a first draft of and a second draft in early December. But that, of course, has to be translated into lots of different languages because 85% of the truck drivers coming through uh, the uh, short straits into the, the channel area, they're all EU nationals. Uh, they're not British nationals. So there's going to be a huge translation job uh, and a publishing job and publication and publicity job to bring people up to speed on all the things they need. Meanwhile, they're likely to be stuck in traffic jams, as we know. And there's been a lot of discussion about toilet facilities for the drivers. The latest update on that apparently is that, contrary to earlier reports, they're now not planning to put portaloos along the side of the road on the M20, uh, the motorway that takes you down to Dover. Um, because the original plan was to have it on the southbound lane, which is where the truck drivers will be stacked. But, but some people in the local authorities think, well, if that's the case, people are going to stop on the northbound carriageway on their way back to London um, and leg it across two lanes of, of four lanes of motorway uh, in order to relieve themselves in the port -a So better not to have the port there and that notorious temptation, which I'm sure we've all felt uh, driving along motorways to suddenly stop and run across to get into a little plastic box. However, that is the, the, the level of granular planning that is going on. Uh, also, questions about hand washing and saying there's no hand washing facilities being factored in or not enough of them. And at a time of COVID, aren't we just creating a further public health hazard for truck drivers? Uh, fair uh, and valid point there. But the big issues relate to the customs infrastructure, the fact that the computer systems aren't ready or most of them aren't ready and, and some of them, uh, particularly relating to Northern Ireland, will not be ready and physical infrastructure the, the parking spaces, what uh, James O'Brien, the LBC presenter, is trying to popularise as Farage garages, or Farage garages, <laughs> as he calls them. Uh, nice. But these big truck parks, uh, seven of them are needed around the country, as well as the, the port capacity to handle the queues and the stacking and the, the customs checks. A, a lot of that infrastructure will not be in place. Uh, in fact, most of it won't be in place for the, the 1st of uh, January. And an awful lot of it isn't going to be in place uh, for the, the uh, 1st of July, when the full customs controls on the British side are supposed to come into play. So there's an awful lot of stuff 
out there that's just not ready. And if they are trying to squeeze an agreement over the line, don't be surprised if there's some kind of derogations or extra extension periods being sought uh, to cope with the fact that uh, the British side of it just isn't ready to deal with the full implications. Okay, well, at least you've given us an insight into why the highlighter pen was squeaking, because it was clearly running out of ink with all of the highlighting you had to do in that particular National Audit Office document. All of that detail, Tony, you can add to that. You're writing a blog for the RTE News website this weekend, looking at the particular issue of supply to the supermarkets in Northern Ireland. And there's a fair bit of detail there And it is concerning as well in terms of the readiness of supermarkets and their supply chains to be able to operate post-January 1st. Yeah, so all the things that Sean highlighted there are also going to apply on traffic going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland because of the protocol. So yes, customs is going to be an issue. VAT, uh, you know, if they get a free trade agreement, some of these issues will not be quite so awful. But Uh, The really big worry and the really big sensitive topic, as you say, has been food because Northern Ireland supermarkets are heavily dependent on suppliers from Great Britain. And with everybody in the EU and with no protocol, uh, you would have thousands of tons of uh, consignments flowing across the Irish Sea into Belfast, into Larne, into Warren Point, also into Dublin and then heading up to the north. Uh, supplying uh, supermarkets and that was all fine and these consignments would be mixed so they could contain hundreds of ready-made meals, they could contain flowers, wine, uh, potatoes, uh, all all sorts of things, seed potatoes. But now uh, under the protocol, Great Britain is going to be regarded as a third country. Northern Ireland is going to be operating the rules of the single market. So the full panoply of EU food safety and animal health checks are due to be applied from the 1st of January at those ports. And they have required, in turn, uh, border control posts or points of entry, as uh, people in Northern Ireland like to call them because they don't like the idea of it being called a border. Um, They're going to have to have VAT systems. Uh, Northern Ireland um, civil servants and inspectors are going to have to be tuned in to the EU's own food safety tracking system, which is called TRACES, as well as their own system, as well as the GB system. Um, And this is all going to be very worrying because the whole model of supermarkets in Northern Ireland is high volume, low profit margin. And if any costs are suddenly shipped into that equation, then you could have supermarkets either closing chains or reducing the range of products that they send to Northern supermarkets. And this prompted so much alarm, um, especially after Sainsbury's said, quite frankly, that they may have to really limit the range of goods that would be sent to Northern Ireland supermarkets. You had a rare moment of unity between Michelle O'Neill, the Sinn Féin leader and uh, Deputy First Minister, and Arlene Foster, the DUP leader and First Minister, who wrote a joint letter to the European Commission saying, what is going on? It's unacceptable if uh, a fundamental thing like supermarkets would be... uh, that you know the flow of goods would be ruined by the protocol. Now, this was the first joint letter sent about Brexit by the Deputy First Minister and First Minister since August of 2016, when Martin McGuinness, the late Martin McGuinness and Arlene Foster wrote a joint letter. So that shows you how alarming this issue has suddenly become. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose it gets right down to the shopping baskets of their that's their constituents. And if Brexit seems like an esoteric issue at the best of times, it's not anymore if your food supply is affected after January 1st. Do we know what the European Union is going to say to them? Is there going to be any out? Is there going to be any extension period? What's going to happen in order to minimise the disruption to supply to supermarkets after January 1st? Or do we know yet? Well, the main problems are around testing and the fact that for every product of animal origin you need an export health certificate that needs to be signed off by a vet that could cost between 50 pounds and 200 pounds uh, there's going to have to be uh, documentary checks now a lot of this is going to be done electronically and you're going to have inspectors in Carn ryan and hasham and liverpool who are going to be doing uh, scanning the export uh, pulling up the export uh, health certificate on an ipad and then checking that against the seal on the truck and then on the other side, there may be uh, random checks. There may be two trucks per sailing might be checked. Um, and But again, all of this is going to cost money and paperwork and supermarkets are simply not ready for this. So one suggestion the UK had, which they've been talking about for, for weeks apparently, is that supermarkets themselves have very sophisticated tracking systems and monitoring systems so that they know precisely where a product is at, a, at any point along the supply chain from where it's picked in Spain to when it ends up in a depot in Glasgow and then it ends up in a supermarket in Derry or or wherever. Um, and they're saying, look, well, why can't we use that system uh, so that supermarkets would in themselves somehow audit the food safety chain uh, across the board um, but you'd need some you know, external scrutiny of that, would you? Because, I mean, trusting a, a supermarket that has a profit motive to tell you that they're obeying all the rules is probably not going to be acceptable no, to, to the bureaucrats, the, is it? I think in the end, um, the, the commission just didn't like this because, uh, first of all, not all supermarket chains have the same sophisticated systems. Um, I think Marks and Spencers are regarded as the cream of the crop. I mean, they, they can tell you exactly where a pepper is uh, from Spain, uh, you know, at, at any given time, where and when it is, where, when it was bought and, and so on. Uh, but other, some of the big companies like Aldi or or, um, or Lidl may not have such sophisticated systems. So uh, that was one thing. Secondly, look, food safety, and Sean will remember this from his time in Brussels, it's an extremely sensitive issue for the European Union. When the single market was invented, uh, the single European Act back in the early 90s, it was a real struggle to get countries to agree to take in the food that was produced in other countries. Um, And they've had to evolve a highly complex set of rules and regulations to make sure that if you're trading food, it's safe and there are ways to stop it spreading if it's not safe. And the problem is Great Britain is not going to be following those rules in the future they're not going to be subject to the same monitoring uh, or enforcement uh, because uh, that's done by the European Commission or the European Court of Justice. Uh, so that means the EU simply needs to do those checks and controls at Larn, at Warren Point uh, and uh, in uh, in Belfast Port. So what they are looking for at, at the moment is simply some kind of grace period to give all the traders and the systems in Northern Ireland time to adapt to it um but I, I providing think, that period is used to adapt to it as opposed to playing it, for exactly yeah playing yeah. for no, time think, and think, politicking about not implementing it at all yeah and, and i think i think certainly 
the reason why things have kind of got a bit more hardball at the moment and you know i think in the podcast in the past few weeks we've talked about how things had got a lot easier at the joint committee but because the free trade negotiations are so fraught and sensitive at the moment i think the commission doesn't want to give anything away uh, on northern ireland or on the protocol that might give the uk some kind of in in the free trade negotiations or even this idea of a grace period or an implementation period i'm sure the uk would love it if the commission said okay for the first six months of next year we won't apply uh, customs formalities and, and food safety checks uh, coming into the eu um, so that seems to be wh where things are at at the moment but it's also worth pointing out that all of these checks and controls are going to be happening in dublin port as well uh, and uh, Ireland imports something like 7 billion euro of food from the UK, north and south, every year. Uh, that's, uh, I think, 1.7 million tons of food. Uh, and, you know, again, if some of that food is meat-based or animal-derived or has dairy or eggs or whatever, again, you know, you're going to have to have checks and controls on that coming in. But it seems that in Dublin, and in Ireland in general, possibly because of the no deal planning last year, um, there has been an awful lot of work done. They have built a mixed consignment inspection facility at Dublin Port, which apparently is state of the art. Uh, there have been um, endless engagements with stakeholders and retailers. Food safety, the Food Safety Authority of Ireland, uh, which is in charge of making sure that EU food safety laws are followed, uh, they've had three uh, webinars so far in, in the last month, and they've had a thousand people uh, tuning into those. Um, so, uh, you know, there is an awareness out there that changes are coming uh, and that people have to prepare for those changes in terms of bringing food in uh, and making sure that export health certificates are are there and are, and are paid for. OK, well, look, what are we looking at in the weeks ahead? Sean, over to you uh, in London first. You know, the well, Brexit. Yeah. Brexit is the thing we'd be looking out for because uh, these talks are supposed to be at their crisis point uh, more or less now. There was a, another round today uh, up the road in Victoria Street and uh, they're supposed to go on next week Barney again, finds his level playing field, you know. It, well, that's it. Um, no, no level playing fields around here apart from, from Westminster Schools. We have a lovely place on uh, Vincent Square. But, uh, he, um, he had a tweet I, of himself... Uh, out on I a think pitch. it must have been yeah, uh, yeah. I think he said he was town by the looks of things. He was looking for level playing fields, wasn't he? He was yeah. staring out at the uh, at, like like that famous painting, well, the man contemplating the abyss. Anyway, because uh, the COVID, nobody's allowed to train or, or practice or play, so uh, yeah, no no problem finding yourself in an empty uh, level looking uh, playing field uh, somewhere in London. But the real level playing field that uh, we all want to get and get behind us is the level playing field between Britain and the European Union. So if something can be done there, uh, that's one of the main keys uh, to unlocking a, a deal, isn't it? And people have been pointing out over here that, look, they've done level playing field type arrangements in their free trade deal with Japan. So what's the big deal about doing it with the EU? Tony? Yeah, well, again, Brexit, um, the, the talks are continuing this weekend and into next week. But I mean, the, I mean, the, the, the deadline has to be next week because you need, well, certainly the European Parliament and the EU in general would want a month before the European Parliament ratifies any deal. Um, there's a video conference involving EU leaders next Thursday on COVID. And, you know, again, that could be 
seen as a possible sign-off moment. But, uh, you know, like, it's Friday. The big issues are still uh, there. Both sides are very far apart. There's not enough time, really, uh, you know, once you get past this weekend, to draft the kind of legal text that will do justice to a decades-long future relationship between two huge economic entities uh, side by side. So it's. I think it's going to be really difficult to get this done. Right, yeah, and this end as well... It's Friday the 13th, seems mm, you mentioned it, Tony. Yeah, the, <laughs> exactly. the uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs here, Simon Coveney, was talking about this week being the key week as well. And interestingly, Michal Martin, Sean and Tony, you probably heard this as well, was out on the BBC Today programme doing an interview with the BBC's political editor, Laura Koonsberg, in which he was combining Joe Biden and Brexit in the same interview. So whether or not there was an element of trying to introduce and leverage through that. Who knows? Yeah, I think I think again, Laura Kinsberg was, you know, asking the the question about is there a, another Thornton Manor moment where somebody will take Boris Boris Johnson aside and see what can be done and you know find the magic key to unlock the lock. Um, but again, as we've talked about before in the podcast, the circumstances then were so much different, and uh, this this is a this and, is not the a pu- single Irish issue. And the publicity around that interview, which you might have expected to be a bit higher, uh, had the rug pulled from under it by the Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings resignations and all the political kerfuffle there. So the normal political journalists who would have been looking at that in a bit more detail were looking down the road to the infighting going on uh, in Downing Street. But yeah, I think you're right about that um, pivot moment last October and we may be getting to another pivot moment now. And perhaps, perhaps that is why you were having those internal infights with uh, Cummings and Boris Johnson going on at the same time, that maybe we are at a pivot point in internal British politics uh, that is going to affect its external uh, politics, notably in relation to the EU, but also with the US administration as well. Right. Happily, we can do it all again next week and catch up on what the fallout from that has been. So that's it for me, Colm O'Mongon, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor from home here in Kildare. From me, Sean Cleveland in Westminster. And from me, Tony Connolly, RT's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening. <laughs>